boom, Sunday, to be given the call to be the one that gets to look you in the eyes and preach the gospel to you in his kindness. Our Father has designed things so that words hit our ears and our hearts respond and grace is poured out. So this is a chance for you to listen, not just with your ears, but with your souls and to be shaped by God's word, delighted to be able to open it together uh, with you. I'm hoping and praying that your heart all week long has gotten to the place that it belongs in Easter week, a place of gladness, a place of joy, a place of thanksgiving, a place of reveling in the Father and the Son and the Spirit and their gospel. Now, to get to that place can be really, really hard work, and that is because our hearts do not naturally flow to that place. Our default position, our tendency in our fallenness is to flow to unbelief, unbelief. That's where we will be all else equal. You guys live just north of Boston with me. You know that when it comes to God and sin and grace and truth and Jesus and church, the default posture of our culture is unbelief. Now, that comes in a few different forms. Sometimes it is that very aggressive, anti-gospel, anti-Christ unbelief. You know the kind of unbelief that I'm talking about that looks at you and just says, how pathetic is it that you guys still get together on Sunday mornings to sing songs about a man who died and supposedly rose from the dead? How silly to think Someone who lived 2,000 years ago was actually God come in, in the flesh in fulfillment of his promises to redeem a people to himself. How silly to still hold on to orthodox, gospel-centered, biblically faithful Christianity. Ridiculous. Have you heard that? That unbelief assaults our souls on a daily basis in the time and the place that we live. Now, that kind of unbelief usually doesn't end up inside of a Christian church like this. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that none of you struggle with that kind of unbelief. We do. I do. This is why I read the secular humanists and the angry atheists to understand what that unbelief looks like and feels like, the awful fruit that it bears, how Scripture engages those rationalizations in my heart to not believe the gospel. What I mean when I say is that's usually not what we're dealing with in here is that if you are there, you have sworn off walking within 100 miles of a Christian church for any purpose whatsoever, and especially a Christian preacher. If you're there, you have your gods, your liturgies, your temples, your idols, your prophets, your scriptures, and they are not the Christian God, scriptures, community, liturgy. That unbelief has thrown off the label Christian altogether. But then there is this other kind of unbelief that is also very prevalent in our context, in our day, in this state with its history. And that is the unbelief that has not fully repudiated Christ 
but has edited him and tamed him. It's the unbelief that does not reject the gospel, but kind of gets out a pen and does a whole lot of rewriting of the gospel and gets out its white out and does a whole lot of whiting out of the gospel. Now, for some reason, we have labeled this kind of unbelief liberal Christianity, and I've never quite understood why that term, because this kind of unbelief rejects the liberation and the freedom that Jesus spoke about coming to bring to us. This is the unbelief that wants to keep the label Christian and wants to maintain its religious traditions and wants to keep doing the Easter Sunday services, but not embrace the plain and the clear teaching of Scripture, what the New Testament says is of primary importance, and that is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So this is the kind of unbelief that threatens our souls, that wants Jesus, but not His cross. Jesus, but Jesus given a complete makeover and put in a nice box. Now, where this unbelief rears its ugly head worse than in all places is this week right here when we are supposed to be centering on the work of Christ on the cross. We could talk about a whole bunch of examples of how it does that. We're just going to press into one deeply together today. Here it is. This kind of unbelief says that Jesus was an example that we should follow, but he was not a ransom that sets us free. That the humility and the servanthood of Jesus is a beautiful model for how we should live, but that this cross that he ended up at the end of the road of living that life was not a substitutionary atonement. It was not a redemptive accomplishment. It was not the intention of God or the victory of God. It was just a very sad, very unfortunate chain of events of history that accidentally happened to a very good man and prophet. That's where this unbelief would lead you and leave you on Easter Sunday. But then we come to a text like today's from Mark's Gospel. And if we can read it and hear it and see it with some faith in our souls, we will see that Scripture insists with us that Jesus is much more than a good example, that Jesus is our example, and Jesus is our ransom. That he not only lived in a certain beautiful way, but that in his life and his death, he accomplished something for us. That Jesus doesn't just show you the way that you must live, but that he has paved a way for you to actually live it. And this is the good news of the gospel. Okay, that's where we're going today. You've heard Dan read the text with me. Let me pray and we'll work this thing through. Father, I pray that you would drive unbelief out of this joint this morning, out of our minds and out of our souls, that you would cause robust, repentant, strong faith to be the mark of this community, that you would do it for our joy on this day and for your glory. Hear my prayer, answer by your spirit now, I pray, Abba. Amen.
Okay, so we're preaching through the gospel according to Mark. In this text that Dan has read, Jesus and his disciples are finally getting to Jerusalem, the city of God. Three times now Jesus has looked his disciples in the eyes and he has told them, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get betrayed and beaten down and bloodied, I will die, I will suffer, and then I will rise again. But The only thing that they have heard is the very first part of that, we're going to Jerusalem. That's all that they've heard. And for those guys, those words, we are going to Jerusalem, mean we are headed for glory. Maybe Jesus is going to have to endure some stuff on the way, but it's coming. I don't know, 15 years ago, you caught the cult classic movie called Swingers. It's about a couple of dudes who are going to Vegas to have this uh, trip and bonding of friendship. And the whole drive out there through the desert, the only thing that they do is look at each other and yell, Vegas, baby, Vegas, Vegas, Vegas. And, and you see this for about three minutes until finally they get there after a whole night's drive and they're, Vegas, Vegas, baby, Vegas. They are convinced that there is good times and riches and glory coming when they get to this city. It's the same thing with these disciples. I need you to feel this. They're not in a convertible. They are walking uphill. They're starting to get excited. They grew up pilgrimaging to Jerusalem, the city of God at the Passover. And when they would walk that road, they would sing the songs of ascent from the Psalms. They were songs of God's glory, of victory, of conquest. One shining moment. We are the champions, my friend. This is what you sing on your way up to Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem, baby, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's all that they said to each other on this walk. We're headed for glory. It's the city of God. And we're with the Messiah. This is going to be sick. They're positive that Jesus is going to be enthroned as king. The promises of God are going to, boom, break through. And check this out. They're on the team. They are in his inner circle. This is all good news. As they get closer to the city, James and John, two brothers, realize, hey, if we want to get the places of the most honor, we better talk with our Jesus right now and let him know to hook us up and make sure that we land in the best place in his kingdom. And the text said that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now that's a very cold statement right there, isn't it? Has anybody ever done that to you in your life? Just been like, hey, I have to ask you something, but before I do, you have to promise me that you'll say yes. Has that ever happened to you? My senior year of undergraduate school, I arrived back on campus uh, in the summer, and they had stuck as a roommate for me a 27-year-old man who was married. And at this time, I'm 21. He was having a struggle with his wife. She was living somewhere else. They put him in my dorm room. When I arrived, he was on the bed cross-stitching. Do you know what that is? 
because I didn't know. And I said, hey. And then I walked out, and I never came back. And this was before cell phones, so I ran and found a phone that was plugged into a wall, and I called one of my best friends who lived in Dallas, Texas. And I said, Henry, this is Matt Cruz. Listen to me. I am going to ask you something. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. And if you love me, you will say yes. Promise me that whatever I ask you, you will say yes. And what's he going to say in that moment? Okay, what is it? What do you want? Fine. And I said, there is a 27-year-old man cross-stitching in my dorm room, and you have to let me live with you this year. And I knew that he had a single room. So this kid had already paid for this single room, and now he had to spend his year living with me. Was this a fair way to pose that question to him? Only a self-centered, self-serving person phrases a question in that way. And that's exactly what James and John are doing. Feel that with me. Manipulating Jesus in a self-serving way. Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? This is a typical Jesus kind of question. It cuts right through all the junk and presses right into the motive of your heart. You will hear this question asked in the next story of blind Bartimaeus. Only blind Bartimaeus gives a beautiful answer. He says to Jesus, I'm blind and I want to see. James and John, like the other disciples, don't know that they're blind. Don't realize they can't see anything that's going on. And so instead of saying to Jesus, like Bartimaeus, give us eyes to see, they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So this is their request in their culture, just like in ours. If someone is ascending to political power and you can attach your balloon to their balloon, what happens when their balloon rises? You rise with them. We see that in politics all the time. Same thing James and John are trying to do. When you rise above all others, let us be the ones who rise with you. Then Jesus says something interesting to them. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? You can kind of feel Jesus just putting his hands on his head and saying, James, John, you guys have no idea what's going on, do you? None. You have no idea what it's going to mean for me to enter my glory. Yes, there will be someone on my right and someone on my left as I enter my glory. But they're going to be pinned to crosses as I will be. And so in love, again, Jesus tries to communicate to his disciples what it means for him to enter his glory. And he gives them two analogies. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? In the older covenant, the drinking of a cup was a symbol of enduring the wrath of God on sin. Think with me of the most bitter, nastiest, most pungent liquid that you have ever drank before. Some kind of old school cough medicine, some diet Dr. Pepper, some Burger King coffee. You getting a picture of this right here? 
Usually when you drink it, how much do you drink? That much, and then you spit it out. You go get some Mountain Dew or something to clean your mouth out. Picture me taking a cup of that liquid, 20 ounces, 24 ounces, a big cup, and then standing over you and handing it to you and forcing you to drink that cup to the dregs. And every sip, every ounce is tearing through your tongue and ripping through your taste buds. This is what Jesus is referring to here with this cup. The cup is the symbol of God's necessary and furious wrath on sin. He's holy. He cannot play with rebellion. Are you able to drink the cup? You want to drink this cup with me? Then Jesus gives a second analogy. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Okay, he's not referring here to the sacrament of Christian baptism, whether that's the sprinkling of water on a baby's head or the nice, safe immersion that we do. Two pastors are holding on to you. You're not going to drown, put you in the lake, put you in that horse trough that we use now at Seven Mile Road for our baptisms. No. Jesus is saying, James, John, haven't you heard a word that I've said? I am about to be bowled over like someone walking the beach when a tsunami hits. I am going to get torn to pieces. I am going to get blasted by whips and have thorns driven into my head and nails piercing my flesh and fists pounding me and spears being jabbed in my side. I am going to drown under the weight of what's coming. Are you really asking to be by my side when I drink this cup and I endure this baptism? You don't know what you're asking. You don't want that. And not only do you not want that, you can't have that. What I am going to endure in Jerusalem will be for you but not with you. I am going to endure this on my own, by myself. There is no one else who can do this work, drink this cup, endure this baptism, just me. In other words, Jesus' answer to them is actually a rhetorical question. They're not supposed to respond when he says, are you able to drink this cup? Are you able to endure this baptism? They're supposed to go, you're right, we're not. Of course, James and John and the disciples, as they are through this entire book, are oblivious to what's happening. And so how do they answer Jesus? Yeah, 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 we are. We are able. And then you can kind of hear Jesus pause, maybe kind of chuckle and just go, all right, yeah. You guys are going to drink this kind of a cup, and you are going to endure this kind of a baptism. But who will sit at my right hand or on my left hand in my glory is not for me to decide, but to whom it has been prepared. In other words, yes, you are going to suffer eventually for my name as I do. In fact, you will look back on this conversation as you suffer as martyrs at the hands of wicked men, and you will... Hear these words of mine from today in a whole different light. 
but I am not in a position to be choreographing, choreographing my glory. This is all in the Father's hands. Okay, the other disciples hear that James and John beat them to the punch and were trying to maneuver ahead of them. They get mad at James and John. Jesus sees division cropping up amongst his disciples, and so he sits with them, and again, he goes over with them what the way of the gospel is. Again, he puts before them an example of how to live. You've heard these words over and over again. Whoever would be great among you would be a servant, and whoever would be first among you has to be the slave of all. Okay, Mark has hammered on this theme so many times that at this point, I have preached on it, Dan has preached on it, Moran has preached on it, and Joey has preached on it. So you don't need me to say it again, but I will briefly. The example of Jesus Christ, the way of Christ, is not the way of exalting yourself, of forceful conquest, of stepping on the throats of others to get to the top of the pile of clamoring for your rights, of racing to the head of the line. That is not the example of Jesus. He has a different way for us to live, to die to ourselves, to willingly go to the back of the line, to give up our rights, to be the least, to be the slave, to be the servant, to be the nobody. This is the way of Jesus. This is his example. Okay, now amazingly, this is where the unbelief that we've been talking about today stops with this text. And it says to you, wasn't Jesus a beautiful example of humility and service and nonviolence? Isn't his teaching just what this world needs? Now go and be like Jesus. But here's the problem. If that is the extent of the Christian gospel, it would not be very good news, would it? It sounds nice, but then at some point you go and you look in the mirror and you realize, I need more than for someone to tell me what I should be or I should do. This is beautiful and true that Jesus was a, a great example, but if that is all that he was, that doesn't help me. If this text ends with me being told Here's what Jesus was like. Now go and be like him. I'm done. Especially when the way of Jesus means a complete changing of tra trajectory of everything that I naturally am. From living the way that I do to somehow living a life of humility and service to others. You are giving me a requirement but not providing a means for me to get there. You are giving me law, but no gospel. You are giving me religion, but no power. This is the one of the reasons that religious churches like this just end up empty. Sinners come, and they are told, Jesus was awesome, and you need to go be like him. And then they look at their lives, and they realize they cannot do that in their own strength. They can't live up to it. They know they're not good enough to get there. This Jesus gospel church thing must just be for the super good people who are able to do what I cannot do. And so they bail. If that is you, 
I have wonderful news for you this morning. That is not the extent of the Christian gospel. That is not where Jesus leads us or leaves us. That is not where this text ends. The great news is that there is another verse in here, and it not only just jolts us with the supreme illustration, the ultimate example of what it means to live a life of humility and selflessness and service, but it also jolts us with the good news that Jesus has done something to enable us to live it. That good news is this. Jesus and his gospel is not, you go serve me. But instead, Jesus' gospel is, I have come to serve you. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, when you hear those words, let's work them. The first thing you should hear is, whoa, Jesus' death was intentional and on purpose. Let it sink in that this act of going to the cross, Jesus came to do this. Believe that gospel this weekend. Jesus did not come just to be an example of how to live and then somehow got caught up in an unfortunate plot that led to his execution. Jesus came for you. Jesus came to die for you. And that intentional death was a ransom. Okay, that's a beautiful translation of this word into English. The Greek word is lutron, and it means, it means that, a payment that is made to someone to release someone else to liberate them, to free them from some kind of bondage. This was the word that was used back in Jesus' day for the paying for or buying off the release of a prisoner of war or to get a slave set free or to cover a debt. The idea here is that you have this one party who finds themselves in a deep, dark hole that they cannot climb out of, cannot do it. It's a circumstance that is utterly hopeless, bondage, slavery. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, someone else steps in and pays the price or does what is necessary to get them out, to loose the bonds, to set them free, a ransom. Okay, we could give a whole number of examples. Let me just give you one. You guys know what student loans are, right? nasty, nasty little things that somebody came up with. So you're 18 years old and you're starting college and you got this blue pen and you're just signing anything, right? Put it down, I'll sign that thing. And you did not know when you were down at the bursar's office that you were signing away your financial future right there. Next thing you know, you're 23 and you get this nice letter in the mail and you're $90,000 in debt. Then you go get married, and now you're $180,000 in debt. And you look at that amortization statement, and it's like 99 pages long. And at the very bottom of it, it says, your final payment will be made on April 16th, 2074. 
And in that moment, you look down at your hands, and what do you feel happening to your financial life? Handcuffs, chains. Feels like an impossible climb, especially because you're working at Models or Starbucks, and you're not making enough money to even chip off the interest payments of this debt, and you realize, I will never crawl out of this hole. Imagine that somebody gives you a call and they say, hey, I got a question. How much student debt do you have? And you just kind of mumble, I don't know, man, too much. It would cost something like 180 grand to deal with my debt. And then that person says to you, good news, I'm going to write a check today that wipes out every penny of that debt. And on Sunday, you're going to be debt-free. This would be crazy, right? Insane. It would leave you speechless. But if that ransom happened, if that payment was made, you would be set free from a, a, a thing that you never could have paid off on your own to begin finally to live your life, your financial life, in a way that you could not have the day before. You needed to be set free before you could go live. Okay, take that idea and just ratchet that up to an infinitely more serious debt. And this is what we're talking about in the gospel. Because in our case, the debt, the slavery, the bondage is to sin, to its consequences and to its power. By consequences, I mean that every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve, every one of us finds ourselves in the same shoes, condemned before an infinitely and perfectly holy God, who we should have loved and appreciated and honored and obeyed with all of our hearts but against whom instead we have sinned relentlessly, doing what we shouldn't have done, not doing what we ought to have done, and now we owe a debt that we could never pay, could never square things with a holy God. And the wages of our sin is death, and that reality looms over our souls, all of us, everyone. And not only are we hopelessly fastened to that future judgment, but we are hopelessly fastened by sin's power in our lives. As long as this debt is not paid, as long as sin still reigns in our mind and our hearts, we are not free to follow Jesus' example. We are not free to throw off the grasping at power, the stepping on throats, the setting up of our own kingdoms. We are not free to die to ourselves. We are slaves to sin and its consequences and sin and its power, lost and unable to pay that debt. If you do not feel the weight of that, you will never feel the power of the gospel. It's why we remind you of it all the time in love. Because that is the place where Jesus meets you. That is the place where Jesus comes and ransoms you or sets you free. This is the place where Jesus comes and says to you, how much debt do you have? 
and you just kind of mumble an answer. I don't know, man, too much. It would cost something like the perfectly, infinitely, holy, perfectly obedient, spotlessly righteous life of the Son of God given in my place to deal with my sin. Never going to happen. That's how much debt I owe. And then what does Jesus say to us in the gospel? He says, good news. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. I'm writing a check. I'm making the payment. On Sunday, you'll be debt free. How does Jesus do this? What is the ransom price? What is the cost? It's the cost of his life. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Please tell me that you hear the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ in your place for your sins in this text of Scripture. This is how any ransom works, right? Payment in exchange of prisoner. Jesus is one life for the many. He dies, we escape death. He takes our sin on himself and we are set free from sin. His life as the payment in place of ours. This is the good news of the gospel. If you have Jesus as your ransom, you are set free from the consequences of sin. If you have Jesus as your ransom, you are set free from the power of sin. Now you can go and follow Jesus as your example. And so this Easter, my primary question for you is not, hey, how you doing in serving Jesus? That's not it. Now we ask each other that question all the time, right? But that's not first. That's not primary. That's not the question that this text is answering today. My question is this. Have you allowed Jesus to serve you? That's my question. Have you received the grace of Jesus Christ? Have you held out your chained hands and said, Jesus, if you don't serve me, I'm done. But I believe that you have come to set me free. Jesus is absolutely our example. It is my soul's desire that this church would reek of humility and servanthood and selflessness. But we will not get there by rejecting Jesus as our ransom and setting off on our own. The way to becoming a holy and humble and selfless church community together goes through the cross of Christ. I need you to believe that with me. The degree to which a church is able to follow Jesus as our example and light up this world with his way is the degree to which we will be a church that receives Jesus as a ransom, as the Lamb of God crucified in our place for our sins. Are we there? Are you there? Well, we will know by whether or not our hearts race when it comes time for Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Nobody who has ever been ransomed has had a hard time being deliriously thankful and joyful and jacked about the one 
who paid their debt. It doesn't happen that way. No one who has been set free from the impossible has a hard time reveling in the grace of the one who has set them free. And so my call this morning is very simple. Receive Jesus as your ransom. See the seriousness of your sin. See Christ serving you and making a payment. And now, live. Live. Let's pray together. Father, if the way of your Son is just our example, we're dead. And so we thank you that you announced to us a different kind of good news, way beyond any man-made, man-centered religion, that Jesus Christ came to serve us, to give his life as a ransom for ours, to set us free. I pray that you'd get our hearts rightly reveling in his grace to us. Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. Dan's going to lead us to the table of Christ. Let's celebrate rightly together.